Yeah, go ahead, Ben. Okay, thank you, Rich, and uh, hello to everyone at Mid Plains Ags and beyond. It's a pleasure to be here again. And uh, now that we've gone through, you know, the bulk of the summer, especially the bulk of the corn growing season, we have a pretty good idea of what is forthcoming. And so, um, unfortunately, you know, the market outlook is still fairly negative, at least for the medium term. Let's call that the next, you know, four or five months. And the outlook, you know, if it wants to be bullish, really takes something different. You know, these balance sheets, one way or another, have to change significantly. You can see lower stocks in the U.S., worldwide, larger energy consumption, um, and just needs to run the gamut. So the medium-term outlook, let's call this M2 December's expiration. It is still oversupply. Previously during the summer, there was some optimism surrounding yield loss in wheat in Russia and Ukraine corn yield loss in Ukraine, but now new data, including vegetation maps, actual reported yields in the Black Sea suggest this is unlikely. And in fact, the Black Sea wheat crop could be a lot, a lot higher than expected and above the USDA's forecast. And of course, in the US, we're looking at potentially record large US corn and soybean yields following an improvement in rainfall uh, in the month of July, and, and more importantly, probably the cooling of temps over the last several weeks that, that have continued on really into this week. You know, for the corn especially, just very, very timely. And so beyond harvest, or really beyond probably the September crop report, we'll, the market will shift its focus to demand. Major importers, we found, did embark on some kind of restocking effort, corn and wheat, during the peak of COVID-19, you know, their concern over food supply, but now new financing difficulties, economic weakness is weighing on current and future grain import. And travel is key. We'll get into this in just a bit, but many major grain importers rely heavily upon tourism for foreign exchange. You know, countries like Morocco, Turkey, Egypt. And as we're debating how this economic recovery develops, at what point does energy consumption normalize? We know that international travel is still the ways off. And how does that impact the purchasing power of these large grain importers? And when do energy markets normalize? Do, is, the, is it still the, dependent on a COVID vaccine? The most recent data up to the end of last week indicates that consumption of crude uh, petroleum, gasoline, ethanol is still plateaued and at levels, you know, substantially below last year. OPEC also started to produce just a little bit more oil uh, beginning over the last weekend. And so we've got weak demand growth in energy and increasing production. And so the outline we think for the next, you know, five or six months is first, we need to digest U.S. crop size, you know, whether that's su substantially above USDA forecast or if it's at or below, we just need to know what it is before we think the market bottom. And at that point, we can determine the chore of demand boosting that is needed in the first and second quarters of the crop year. And then we shift focus to South American seedings and weather beginning in November. But the first two uh, steps of this do look to be negative, barring some catastrophe at harvest, a hurricane, early frost, something like that. And so long-term, what is needed to be bullish of agricultural markets? And to us, it's a further collapse in the U.S. dollar or Chinese corn demand of 10 to 12 million tons annually. You know, so far, they've bought almost 4 million tons from the U.S. There's talk that this could be higher. Maybe there is some kind of real supply tightness in China. We don't know. We tend to think maybe not. But either way, we do need to see China import 
much more than it projected, 7 million tons of all origins to really shift the corn market outlook in the next 12 months. And so we'll get right into it, yield probabilities. And so we've done a lot of work on, you know, analyzing, digesting other firms' ability to forecast yield, uh, or just how accurate have these, you know, monthly estimates been. And what we found is that our own crop condition yield model since 2012 has performed the best. And that is not to toot our own horn. We just wanted to identify what model works the best, and that's the one we'll follow, no matter, no matter whose it is. And this is not terribly complicated. This is basically just the year-over-year year change in crop ratings, good to excellent, and a year-over-year year change in NAS yields. And so anyone can make this model. Secret is out. And so we've seen that, you know, kind of last year it overestimated yields into September, but then it was very, very accurate. And, and so the point is, as of now, as of crop ratings in early August, the most probable yield in the August crop report is between a 180 and 181. So that is at one and a half to two and a half bushels from the USDA currently. The soybean yield model is a little more impressive. And last year it overestimated yields into November, but then in the end it, it was fairly accurate. And that makes sense just given that you know, crop ratings in June are not nearly as important as crop ratings towards the end of the growing season. But this yield model as of now, suggests a U.S. national soybean yield of 52 bushels an acre, and that is up almost three bushels above the USDA's forecast. So both are higher. The soybean yield on a percentage basis is a little more significant should it come to fruition. And so what that looks like historically, you know, we're looking at a 15.2 billion bushel corn crop in the U.S. That is up roughly 200 million bushels from the USDA and up a 1.5 billion on last year. And so that hole, there needs to be demand that fills that and that's what the market will start to focus on you know, really beyond the early part of September. And soybeans, a crop of 4.3 billion bushels, so 200 million from the USDA and up 3.6, uh, I'm sorry, up 700 million from last year or about 19%. So we're looking at a major, major change in US soybean production potential, barring again a catastrophe at harvest. We also sort of look at where these uh, changes in production have the most impact on cash markets. And so really outside of maybe Colorado and Ohio, all states are doing better than they are last year and on average. But we'll look at something like Iowa, Nebraska, uh, just the, the points of good excellence, you know, two and three percent. So a, a crop near last year, most I'm sorry, yeah, last year average, most likely trend yield, slightly above trend yield. But if we move on down the line and look at states like Kentucky, Alabama, who as of last week, its corn crop was 90% good to excellent. The crop in South Dakota is 18 percentage points higher than average in terms of good to excellent. And so we had this regional corn supply tightness in the Eastern Midwest, you know, Kentucky, Illinois, Ohio specifically. Our basis still today is positive and peaked at about 30 to 40 cents over. But we think that is where basis has the most dramatic change moving forward. Uh, you know, new crop bids just seem to have started to normalize 10, 20 cents under, and that's gonna be the biggest change for cash flow for the farmers is gonna be in that part of the world near the Eastern Corn Belt. And South Dakota, unfortunately, is gonna have a massive surplus with very few new markets available. More or less the same in soybeans. Year over year on the margin, gains in the western Midwest should be fairly limited. But we look at the eastern Midwest and Mid-South and Delta especially, 
major, major changes in yield compared to last year. You know, Louisiana is up 23 points from average. South Dakota is up 22 points from average. So ballooning surpluses in those uh, parts of the country, and especially something like Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi, and the, their proximity to the Gulf uh, will fill that, that early season export demand. So the demand pull further into the Midwest and into the Plains will be probably a little slower to materialize unless we see just massive weekly demand from China. The other big issue, you know, these issues are probably away from the U.S., but what we saw was some severe heat in southern Russia and very concerning for wheat production there. It ended up being a fairly normal year um, and a very good year outside of southern Russia, but this highlights what turned to be brief, but real market concern for cash wheat prices. Once the Russian wheat harvest started, we were looking at a cumulative yield, you know, 15, 12% below last year. And if you were to extrapolate that, you know, at 10% harvest, that would suggest that maybe the USDA's Russian wheat production number was 10 or 12 million tons too high. All of a sudden, you know, carry that forward, Russia bans wheat exports, this is a major problem. But in the subsequent weeks, and very counter-seasonally, Russian wheat's yields have rallied quickly, every single week. And so now at 44% harvested, wheat yields are above last year and still rising. And so we think that this probably continues and the discrepancy between recent years and this year gets wider. And so very quickly, in a matter of three weeks, now we're looking at a Russian wheat crop of perhaps 80 million tons, and that's 3 million tons above the USDA's forecast. And Russia, in that three-week period, has gone from needing to slow export demand to needing to find more export demand. And that's what's really weighed on wheat in the last 10 sessions or so. And at the same time that we're seeing Russian wheat yields increase, we're looking at a very, very good weather forecast in Australia. Now, this is all mostly expected, and that is because of the development of La Nina. La Nina doesn't correlate with weather everywhere, but where it does is in Argentina, Australia, and Southeast Asia. La Nina is typically very, very good for rainfall in Australia. This is the two-week forecast. Major wheat and barley production areas are highlighted. And in some pockets of these grain producing areas, more rain will fall in the next 10 days than what usually falls through the entire month of August. And because of La Nina, the climate forecast also keeps this pattern of you know, normal to above normal rainfall intact into the end of September. So places in Eastern Australia especially could see uh, record or near record wheat and barley yields. And this is very, very different because Australia has had three years of drought, two years of severe drought consecutively, beginning in 2017. And in the last two years, Australian wheat exporters have been more or less completely absent from the world market. It was really left to Argentina and the Northern Hemisphere to fill imported wheat demand. But that changes significantly this year. The Australian wheat harvest starts in November, Exports will be available by December or early January, and they are already looking to compete and give competition to Europe, the U.S., and Russia. And that is not something that the wheat market has seen in the last two crop years. And so, again, this is also what's weighing on the wheat market. And to put this into perspective, we think the USDA's forecast, because of recent and upcoming rainfall and the climate forecast, is too low. 
So we think that Australia will have a combined wheat and barley harvest of 40 million tons. That's up 4 million tons from last year and 16 million tons from 2019. Australian domestic grain consumption is very, very flat at about 14 or 15 million tons. So all this will find the export market and it will find the export market through price. We're already looking at very, very steep discounts in Australian wheat futures in January onwards. In fact, as of this week, Australian wheat futures for January are below Black Sea cash prices. So there's going to be a lot of competition for wheat demand. This does not really pertain to the Nebraska farmer, but if we're not looking at a shortage of wheat, there's little else left to hold up corn in the context of record U.S. yield potential. So this is important to all grain markets. And so as we start to think about rising supplies in the U.S., rising supplies outside of the U.S., competition for world share, uh, et cetera, this is something we've seen for the last several years, but there is a larger burden now being placed on world grain consumption growth if we are to avoid ballooning surpluses worldwide, especially in major exporting regions. And COVID, which is still around, and of course has changed everything negatively on the margin. I, mean, I think we're all aware of the U.S. case and death numbers, and so we won't get into that. But we do want to highlight two countries, India and Mexico. India, because of its contribution to GDP growth, you know, it's one of the last countries that's still, prior to this year, seeing growth of 6% or higher GDP year over year. In 2020, this will follow just 1%, and the return of growth thereafter really hinges upon the rate of new infections, this graphic, getting very close to zero. Of course, we all know it's a very densely populated country. Infrastructure is poor, and so this could be very, very difficult. In Mexico, because of the sheer size of its corn, wheat, soy, and dairy imports from the U.S., so they're the largest buyer of U.S. corn, it's a sizable destination for soybeans, wheat, and even fluid milk. It's when you're one of the few places we ship, we ship fluid milk to. And so this curve also needs to get very, very flat if Mexican food demand is to grow on the margin. And like I mentioned before, a lot of this centers on travel, which at the moment is very, very weak. And so as these countries experience higher unemployment, uh, weak year-over-year -year growth in total revenue, we know that those consumers are going to spend less. And this, this shows that graphic empirically, but this is not surprising to anyone. The correlation between unemployment and consumer spending is very, very tight. And so these are places that experience swelling unemployment. India's urban unemployment today is 10%. Mexico's national unemployment is 12%. In the U.S., 30 million people or so are unemployed. We know that consumer spending is going to be down. And how does this impact international travel? Well, of course it does. We all know that. But we wanted to provide some context you know, to know exactly what that means. And so World Bank data... Is, is good through 2018. I don't imagine 2019 was much different. In fact, there probably was growth, but it's just interesting to think about the, you know, Mexican, Mexican tourism revenue in 2018 was $24 billion, and it has been growing, and was not even hit all that much during the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. But because of, you know, mandated travel restrictions, this is going to be a much, much weaker number in 2020. And so that money that could be used for, for, new, for food at resorts, uh, government taxes, we just think purchasing power in these places is going to be down year over year. Egypt, as of 2018, $13 billion of revenue due to international tourism. 
higher than expected. And this too will be closer to four or five billion probably in 2020, if that. And so we're already seeing Egypt scramble for cash in order to buy wheat. They bought very strange tonnages. And really, they just buy wheat whenever loans come through from international banks. And so this is different. We've not seen something like this. And what interests me about this is Egyptian tourism revenue was growing during the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Only really when the Arab Spring started did that get affected, but they were just beginning to recover when COVID-19 hit. And so, of course, all this is going to have a major impact on GDP growth. We've seen charts like this. They've been updated since. But you know, negative GDP growth in North Africa, the Middle East, and really everywhere. But these places that are so reliant upon tourism, foreign exchange especially, are also very big importers of corn and wheat. It shows the international tourism's contribution to exports, and so a major component of GDP. So Egypt, 25% of exports. Turkey, 15% of exports. Turkey is one of the larger uh, importers of wheat to make flour. U.S. Uh, tourism, international tourism, contributes just 10% to exports. And so it's a much smaller portion of GDP relative to these other countries. And so prior to the outbreak of COVID-19, we were forecasting record corn imports from North Africa, 22 million tons. This compares to just 11 million tons in 2012. The same thing for wheat, record imports, 29 million tons. But how does this be, become affected if those countries GDP growth is negative, foreign exchange is down, and government revenue is down. We've already seen this take effect. World wheat trade in July will be a four-year low at 10 million tons, down from the last two years especially. And while annual wheat trade was growing, this seems to have uh, caused a major snag in the growth of wheat consumption worldwide. And remember, this is happening at a time that production is growing in Russia and Australia, even Canada and probably the U.S. to some extent. So it's this lack of trade that's going to make balance sheets look even more negative as they're compiled in the next two to three months. Corn trade, too. We've seen really corn trade struggle prior to COVID-19. It bounced a little bit in June relative to the previous year, but cumulative major export corn shipments as of June are unchanged on the previous year at 115 million tons. So if we can't find growth in a non-COVID year, we don't think we're gonna find growth in the 2020 and 2021 crop years. In the case of soybeans, we have seen incredible demand growth in China. You know, they seem to be doing much better economically. They're very quick to shut down the coronavirus. We're also seeing with good evidence that their pig herd is beginning to expand again. And I think we've discussed previously that those pigs now will, will enter commercial production. You know, it's going to be much more efficient, but also require commercial feeding rations. So that's going to demand a lot more corn and soy meal and a lot of uh, feed ingredients as a whole. But still, we haven't benefited all that much. China seems to be buying what China needs from the U.S. to prevent new tariffs from coming on. Where look at the red line on this graph, like Brazil has benefited immensely from the return of China's uh, hog herd growth and economic uh, resiliency, at least. And so we wonder if there is a point, not going to be this year, but 2021 or 22, when Brazil possibly can supply China's soybean import needs entirely. This is why Chinese and U.S. relationships are so important 
phase one deal aside, we would like to have the benefit of capturing China's growing need for feed. And speaking of politics, I mean, this is partially due to, I think, the, you know, the infatuation with tariffs and the beginning of the trade war, but it's also kind of a long-term trend. Um, but the U.S. on a monthly basis has more often been a net importer of ag products, which is unfortunate. You know, prior to 2019, it was nearly unheard of. Ag's contribution to GDP was fairly sizable, but that does seem to have changed over the last 16 months. And so using census data, there have been four consecutive months where the U.S. has been a net importer of agricultural products on a value basis. And so again, rising supplies, weak structural demand growth in grains, and energy markets don't look all that much better. And so this is entirely related to COVID, which triggered unemployment, mandates on travel. But we noticed gasoline consumption recovered quickly in late spring, but since June really has plateaued. We see no reason why this plateau is exceeded in the next two months. We wonder if it is not exceeded into the early part of 2021. So this is you know, between 7 and 10% below last year. That probably continues into December. Ethanol production, because of its mandate as a fuel additive, is just going to follow weekly gasoline use. It's also plateaued, and, also, and notice that it's fallen short in all but one week of what's needed to meet the USDA's forecast. So, so because of this plateau in energy consumption, we think the USDA's old crop corn industrial use forecast is still overstated by 10 to 30 million bushels. And so that will come in either the August or the September WASDE report. And so while we've got plateauing US and world energy demand, OPEC is starting to produce more. After August, this will be more fluid, but the EIA's short-term outlook based on OPEC's plan to increase production um, suggests that this will be sort of an uptrend that carries into the first part of 2021. So already, you know, there's a historic cut of 10 million barrels per day during the spring. On August 1st, that cut was lowered to just 8 million barrels per day. And we get back to more or less pre-COVID levels by December. And so this, like the grains, mandates we find energy consumption growth to prevent a swelling of stocks and cheaper prices. But we do think that OPEC does continue to produce more crude. And again, it goes back to government revenue, foreign exchange. They just can't afford not to at this point. So the energy outlook is, is very slightly bearish, but still bearish. And that's not terribly insightful. That's what happens every year. Crude, gasoline, all petroleum demand peaks in June or July, as does price. And then we get sort of a weak neutral trend, a very slow drifting lower into the end of the year. So that trend should be followed. But when we're starting at $43 crude, that means we could see uh, $36, $38 crude in the next 90 days. We could start to drive more miles in the U.S., Maybe this changes, maybe OPEC does keep this production cut of 8 million barrels per day intact through the end of the year. But this, what this does to the corn farmers, it gives us a way to define the ethanol economy. So we can even boost ethanol production in the, in the remainder of 2020, in early 2021. But at what price does corn have to be to provide this incentive? And that's the big concern for us at the moment. Currently, futures-based ethanol production margins turn negative when spot Chicago corn is above 340 a bushel. So that reflects to us the sort of hard cap on rallies should they occur in the next couple of months. 
and exports, we're seeing more and more reliance on China. This relationship is very, very important. It does seem to be political for the moment, but we would like to keep this relationship positive and intact. So we can see this is new crop corn export commitments as of late July. There are a solid 325 million bushels. That's up substantially from last year's 150 million bushels. But notice that real demand growth is due to China. We think that China might be done buying corn, especially from the US. So at least through the end of calendar year 2020, perhaps they come back in early to mid 2021. But that too probably depends on South American production and the US's relationship, trading relationship with China at that point. And so Chinese demand is very, very important. Non-Chinese demand is pretty ho-hum at the moment. It's less of an issue for soybeans, and we always sell a lot of beans to China, but we can also see pretty uneventful demand to the rest of the world. A lot of this demand growth year over year, which is sizable. You know, new crop soybean exports as of now are five times what they were last year. But that's due to China. And so we can't source all of the beans from South America just yet. And so we're going to see more sales to China uh, you know, on a weekly, you know, near daily basis, probably for the next several weeks. But what does China absolutely need from the U.S. to bridge the supply gap? That's what we think they're going to buy. They're going to fall short of the phase one agreement. That's, there's really no doubt about that. The intentions seem to be worsening. A USTR will host a meeting with China to discuss the progress of phase one on August 15th. We're just a little less optimistic, or it just really comes down to this relationship with China if we are to meet the USDA's new crop soybean export demand forecast. Because otherwise, there's really not a lot of reason or incentive for the importer to book heavily forward U.S. corn. Argentine basis has followed the U.S. higher, but it's still about 20 cents cheaper to buy corn from Argentina than the U.S. goal between now and October. So into a harvest position even in the U.S., Argentine corn is still more attractive to the importer, especially given Argentina has a very slight freight advantage into East and Southeast Asia. And so what we're left with, given all that weak energy demand growth, terrible cash reserves in major importing countries, record U.S. yield potential, this is the balance sheet as we see it now. So not wildly different than the USDA's, but still looser to some extent. So 2.98 billion bushels this year. And assuming we cut 3 million acres from production next year due to cheap prices and assume trend yield of 181, we're still left with 2.7 billion bushels next year. And so like we've done in all of these webinars, we really do want to push the farmer to, to sell forward capture those premiums and make sure the insurance products chosen are correct, that we get paid when corn goes down. There's otherwise no real silver bullet to this. This is going to be a lasting period of oversupply. In the case of soybeans, not wildly bearish by itself, but still more than adequate stocks. So we think that in the end, the USDA's new crop soybean in stocks will be up a little over 200 million bushels, mostly due to yield maybe a little bit due to a lack of demand growth. But then we'll be adding to corn acres in 2021. So if we assume 4 million acres are shifted to soybeans, even assuming another year of demand growth, about 100 million bushels, we're still left with 685 million bushels in stocks. So this just keeps soybeans at an eight to nine, $950 commodity. So we still have this sort of mentality of selling rallies and everything. You know, none of this goes away. Competition from South America, 
um, improving yield technology in these emerging markets. None of that changes in the next 24 months. There's kind of a silver lining down the road, or potentially one. So for the first time in three years, we are looking at the formation of La Nina to some extent, probably fairly strong. And again, like I mentioned, this doesn't drive weather um, in many places, but one of the places that it does is Argentina, and it is a net negative for Argentina. This shows soybean and corn yields performance against trend in Argentina in years that La Nina is present in December. So clearly, clearly this is not a positive for Argentine rainfall and temperatures. And so La Nina is forecast to be around in December, and so could we lose 20 million tons of corn production in Argentina, like we did in 2017? 15, 20 million tons of soybean production, like we did in 2017. We don't know. La Nina forecast could change. It could rain anyway in the month of November and December, and will be just fine in terms of world supply. But this is something that's caught our attention, and just means that maybe not get too aggressive selling December 21 corn below 340. It is all we can say for the time being, but it's something that we'll be watching as we get through these steps of determining U.S. crop size, determining the demand for that's ahead. But then when we get to watching South American weather, this will be a little more important, especially we are seeing dryness intact across Argentina currently. This assumes the very nearby forecast and shows percent of normal rainfall in Argentina from July 1st to August 15th. The major corn and soybean belt is highlighted. And already this is starting to trim acreage forecasts. People are very concerned about the lack of rain. And in fact, the 30-day forecast isn't much better. It's very early. Even early corn planting doesn't start until September, but there's no doubt there needs to be an improvement in moisture if we are to realize new crop Argentine corn and soybean production forecasts. So this could be, you know, at least a modestly bullish shock to the market come this Feb of this winter. So that's what we're left with. Unfortunately, the outlook is still negative, features oversupply, but there will still be opportunities presented. And I thank you for joining. We're here to help. And if you have any questions or comments or rebuttals, even, please email me at buckner at agresource.com. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, ben? Yes, sir. When, does, when is Ag Resource anticipating the lows to come this fall? And where, how low could that be? You know, I would trust uh, broad seasonal trends. I mean, it's just kind of been foolish to ignore those. And that would be the first half of September and probably down 7% from this week's settlement, to be honest, would be how that works. And so if we assume basis spot, you know, that's, that's probably something like 280, 285 December corn during the first half of September. Or maybe it's September contract during expiration and just plunges to 280, and that's probably it. Um, and at that point, you know, it's probably not wise to be bearish corn, but without a South American weather issue, it just turns into a very neutral market. So we have this range of maybe 280, 320 in the following six months. And that's kind of our roadmap for corn. And soybeans is the same. First half of September, maybe 840, 850, then a very neutral market into you know, the early part of 2021. So Nothing, except for La Nina possibilities to Argentina, there's nothing really super positive out there. There's not. There's not, especially, you know, what we've seen in the Russian wheat yield. And I know that doesn't affect corn and beans specifically, but, you know, it does take some of the wind out of, you know, the raw material speculator. You know, there's just not a lot of reason to go long commodities at the moment.
And, and yeah, I think it's two things. It's South American weather and it's Chinese buying. And so we, we, you know, we're a little pessimistic on Chinese demand, but we're also, it's just very opaque market. I mean, there is evidence that hints that China's corn market is fairly tight um, and, and they could import 12 million tons. We'll have to follow that pretty closely. But those are the two things that would change the structure of the market from the way it stands today. Okay. So we, we have recorded this, this webinar and we'll, we'll post it on our website the next probably hopefully by sometime tomorrow. So if anybody knows anybody that'd like to hear this, I think these are really great webinars. Uh, pass the word around and we'll keep working on them. So thank you everybody. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Rich. Always a pleasure.